0: October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast, episode number 8, Networking. Last week, we met Ellen James White, the last two founders, after Joseph Bates, of the Psy, someday Seventh-day Adventist Church. The good news is that these three founders, the triumvirate, if you will, Had sorted out the core theological foundation for the new church, such as keeping Saturday as a Sabbath and the idea that Jesus went into the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary on October 22, 1844, thus commencing the Day of Atonement, the final act in the long play of salvation. They had finally solved the biggest problem of the new movement what happened in 1844, what do we even believe? Having sketched out a theological identity, the goal from 1846 and on was to get the message out. They still very much believed Jesus was coming soon, and the more they talked about this Sabbath thing, the more it seemed like a big deal. Other Christians dismissed the Adventists on the grounds that the Saturday Sabbath had been done away with at the cross. It was an old covenant thing. Sunday was the new Sabbath, and they did call Sunday the Sabbath back then, Of a grace focused New Testament church. And this is pretty much what anyone will say today as well. And I want to pause right here and suggest that we get some perspective on this issue, because we can be tempted to think that they were making too big a deal out of this one commandment. Part of that, of course, was the excitement over discovering something that Christians had forgotten, something important. But it was also because Christians who churched on Sunday in the 1800s took their Sunday Sabbath-keeping seriously. Dwight L. Moody, a famous preacher writing in 1899, said, When I was a boy, the Sabbath lasted from sundown on Saturday to sundown on Sunday. Moody went on about how Sunday was a day of rest, a day people shouldn't work if they can help it. Moody even thought reading a newspaper on Sunday was too much. In my opinion, he wrote, a true, active, and earnest Christian has no time, no inclination, and no right to read the Sunday papers, end quote. And while he admitted that papers have a great role to play in civilization, he said, I am not blind to the serious evils with which its Sunday editions threaten our American Sabbath. Our American Sabbath was precisely what the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church were up against. The response to this was three-pronged. First, Saturday is still the legitimate Sabbath in the Bible. Second, Sunday is merely a tradition which started much later in history and then was read back into the Bible by modern Christians. Third, more than a tradition, it was a tradition established by the Roman Catholic Church. This latter point is a theme Adventists would return to over and over again. If the Catholic Church decided that Sunday over the Bible's Saturday would be the early church's day of rest and worship, then aren't Protestant Christians merely giving homage to the church they were supposedly protesting and not to the Bible they were professing? Therefore, the Adventists wanted to call all people back to observance of the Bible and not mere tradition, no matter how popular that tradition was. Jesus was coming soon, there was no time to lose. I think this little detour about the Sabbath is important because it gives us a sense not only of how the early Adventists viewed their mission, but also the spiritual environment they grew up in. Moody wasn't being flippant when he called Sunday the American Sabbath. He was representing the majority view. The triumvirate felt a moral imperative to get the word out, to call Christianity back to the Bible. For once, the way forward was clear to them, The problem was figuring out how to get there, and they knew it would be an uphill battle. There were two initial problems with getting the word out, credibility and money. Even a few years later, the great disappointment of 1844 tarnished the reputation of those preaching the return of Jesus, as you might expect. For some reason being catastrophically wrong in predicting that Jesus is coming on a specific date and that everyone should repent and be ready seems to turn people off from listening to you. We've all made mistakes, maybe not of the same caliber, and we all know that as time passes and you keep making good decisions, these barriers will erode. Nevertheless, it's not easy. Harold Camping, for instance, predicted that Jesus would return on May 21st, 2011. You might remember all of the media attention, the billboards, and the many Christians who even joined forces with atheists to ridicule such a prediction. After that date passed, Camping tried again for later that year, but having failed in that prediction as well, Camping gave up. Immediately thereafter, he hid in hotel room with his wife. Camping's lost credibility meant that he could have stood in a puddle and predicted rain and few would have believed him. But imagine him trying to start a new church out of that very, very minor disappointment. Imagine him saying he was done with predictions and wants to start a new church. Who would go? Who would listen to him? This is a poor example, but it at least conceptually helps us to relate to the enormous credibility challenge the early Adventists faced. They were the children of the disappointment, but they weren't the only child. As we've seen, Miller and Himes, the parents as they were, Took a chunk of the kids and went one way. Some of the other kids went to another extreme, insisting, as we've seen, that marriage no longer exists and that this is the new earth. There were dozens of other little groups too, all of these arguing before the world that their interpretation of 1844 was correct and they alone should be listened to. I mean, this is a PR nightmare. How in the world? do you end up founding a church that has, as of now, about 18 to 20 million members out of this fiasco? They didn't exactly hide under a rock or a hotel room or change their names. They didn't act ashamed. They just endured the social pain and pressed on until people didn't care anymore. They actually wanted others to join them. That's brave, and whether or not you agree with them, that's the kind of character founders of anything need to have. Of course, that second problem we can all relate to, money. Money, money, money. Ellen and James, my goodness, pretty much subsisted on donations from others at this point. Having little Henry Nichols White being born in August 1847 didn't help either. They moved around New England, living with various families while James worked as manual labor to make ends meet, which didn't always work out. At one point, he worked from sunup to sundown for 50 cents. That would earn him roughly enough to buy five pounds of flour a day, so the family would be fed, but little else. Since a pair of new boots back then could cost $20, you kind of understand how poor they were. The people the whites stayed with often helped from here and there, but it took incredible sacrifice Ellen broke down from time to time, wondering if the Lord had forsaken them. Letters came in, inviting them to go speak here and there, but they frankly couldn't afford it. Their mission said, "Ah, uh, aren't you supposed to be going around meeting people, encouraging the church, and building up communities of the faithful? To which their bank account, or at least the coffee tin standing in for their bank account, replied, Huh? What? Who are you? To make matters worse little Henry grew sick to the point where people were telling the parents that there was nothing that could be done but pray. Pray they did, but Ellen felt guilty for hiding behind motherhood as an excuse to stay home and not preach more. She prayed all the more, and Henry began to recover. Another invitation arrived, asking the whites to be a part of a conference in Connecticut in April 1848. James went to his boss, and they settled up. It turned out that there was a bank error in his favor, and he made ten whole dollars. Woohoo, I can buy one boot, James certainly did not say. In fact, Ellen used five dollars of that to buy some very much needed clothing before patching over the patches of James's coat so that, from the side, you could hardly tell which fabric was the original. The remaining five dollars bought their passage to Connecticut. Joseph Bates, who did pretty well for himself as a sea captain, had spent pretty much all of his money preaching the return of Jesus in 1844. In fact, as he was working on his tract about the Sabbath, Prudence Bates, his wife, asked him to run to the store to get four pounds of flour that she needed to finish cooking. All Bates had to his name was twelve and a half cents, so calling for a pizza was out of the question that night. Heading to the store, Bates got exactly four pounds of flour and went home. Naturally, Prudence was distraught. Yeah, I know I asked for four pounds of flour, but you could have gotten a big bag so we would have enough for the rest of the week, Joey. How dare you get what I asked for and nothing more? Then Joseph Bates dropped the truth bomb. Uh, we're broke. I just spent everything that we have in the whole wide world. Prudence broke down. What are we going to do, she demanded. Captain Joseph Bates summoned up as much manly courage as he could and replied, That's why I'm writing this tract. The Lord will supply the rest of what we need. Oh, yes, Prudence retorted, that's what you always say. Insert wifely eye-rolling here. Rather than this whole conversation escalating into a lovely feud over finances, Bates went back to writing, only to feel a strong tug to go to the post office. The postmaster handed him a letter that had arrived for him, but Bates didn't have the money to pay for it. Ah, yes, the lovely days when Americans had to pay for the mail they received. The postmaster just told him to take it and come back and pay him later, but Bates wouldn't do it. I feel impressed, Bates told the man, that there is money in the letter. Please open it, and if this is so, take the postage first, and then give me the rest. Surprise! There was a $10 bill in there. Wanting to make things up with Prudence, he purchased a barrel of flour, along with some other good stuff, and headed home. Prudence was once again distraught. I thought we were broke. Where did all this stuff come from? The Lord sent them, her husband replied. That's what you always say, she retorted again. He handed her the letter, which had come from a man who felt somehow that Joseph Bates just needed a little money. Needless to say, dear Prudence's day got a lot better bless her heart. When it came to printing that tract on the Sabbath, various people sent Bates a little money here and there, enabling him to print it without going into debt. In fact, when you think of it, it's kind of remarkable that James, Ellen, and Bates all detested the idea of going into debt. Somehow, and they would give credit to God, they survived these early years without pulling out that credit card. Dave Ramsey would be so proud. Accepting the invitation to speak at conferences was the first way the founders had for getting the word out. The conferences were opportunities for these like-minded believers to get together and hammer out the finer points of what they believed. Everything was kind of in flux up until this point. Dosa Bates was excited to learn about the Sabbath, while O.R.L. Crozier was excited that he had learned the truth about 1844. Everyone had a new idea, and these conferences were necessary venues to get everyone on the same page and to figure out exactly what united them as a group. They were exciting, but often frustrating, meetings. As James and Ellen White arrived in Rocky Hill, Connecticut, that April for the conference, they had 50 cents left and no idea what to do. So James threw his luggage on a pile of wood at the local lumberyard, and they walked around town with seven-month-year-old Henry in tow until they could find someone who believed like them. Amazingly, there wasn't an app for that. Eventually, they found such a man, who quickly invited them to stay with them. The Whites found about 15 people there when they had arrived, including Joseph Bates and Bates' friend Gurney, but that number soon swelled to 50. Ellen White doesn't say much about the meeting, except that Bates gave a great presentation on the Sabbath, and admitted that not everyone was, in her words, fully in the truth. Still, James White described this meeting much later on as the first general meeting held by Seventh-day Adventists. The meeting ended with another invitation for another conference in Volney, New York, that August. Upon returning home, James immediately set out mowing hay to earn enough money to go to the Volney conference, At some point, you'd expect someone to step in and say, James, buddy, do you think it's a good idea to work yourself to death just to earn enough money to attend yet another conference? Think about your future. Think about the kids. It's a fair criticism, and yet we must recognize that a lot of the entrepreneurs that we admire, the men and women who built these huge organizations, are often people who risked everything to build it. When you fail, you're an idiot. When you succeed, you're a bold visionary. While James and Ellen certainly didn't look at themselves this way, for not many entrepreneurs do, it's one of those things that some people just have to do. It defies all conventional wisdom to bet everything on this one horse, but that's how some of the most amazing personal stories are born. James worked hard, in the field six days a week. One day, when it rained, and so he had a rare day off, He wrote to a fellow believer that he had cleared a hundred acres, swinging the scythe like the grim reaper of hay. Okay, maybe I added that grim reaper part. He did it all for eighty-seven and one-half cents a day. I hope, he wrote, to get a few dollars here to use in the cause of God. He earned forty dollars in the summer of 1848. Ellen left little Henry with some friends, and the couple met up with Bates and Gurney for the trip to Volney. Ellen White claims that there are about 35 people present at the Volney Conference, which makes it a slightly smaller gathering than Rocky Hill. There might as well have been a hundred people there because Ellen noted that everyone disagreed with each other. One person, she noted, believed that the thousand years of revelation were in the past and that the 144,000 mentioned in chapter 7 were those raised at Christ's resurrection. When they moved to have communion together as a sign of unity, one person objected, saying that communion was merely an extension of the Jewish Passover and should only be celebrated once a year. James White preached on the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25, but everyone could see that this conference was going nowhere. J.N. Loughborough interviewed several of these attendees years later and gave us the rundown. Amidst the arguing, Ellen White began to have a vision— Rising to her feet, she lifted her Bible up high and looked away, pointing blindly to the text as she began to explain the errors that many of the people there were maintaining. A man named Ross looked at the Bible and found that Ellen White really was, without looking, pointing to the exact Bible verse she was quoting out loud. Ellen summarized the conclusion in her memoirs. Our meeting closed triumphantly. Truth gained the victory. End quote. The craziness at Volney evaporated into a deeper unity. Volney was followed up magnificently as the Whites, Bates, higher Edson, and another man stopped by a believer's house in Hannibal, about 12 miles from Volney. Once again, Ellen White went into vision, holding a Bible and placing it in the hands of a person who didn't believe in the Sabbath. The vision convinced him as well. The crew went on to Port Gibson, where they met in Hiram Edson's famous barn, outside of which he had had his vision of Jesus on October twenty-third, 1844. From there, they went on to other conferences, and at each conference there were three fixtures, Ellen White, James White, and Joseph Bates. They didn't become the nucleus of this church because they were the brightest scholars or even the best organizers. They became the core because they sacrificed everything to be in the center or rally and publish and pray and study constantly. While they had great skills, none of them had some rare talent. There was no Napoleon or Steve Jobs among them. They were ordinary people, and they worked hard to keep this band of believers together and on target. And of course, the visions helped too. And in the early days, this was all best accomplished by meeting together as often as possible. After Port Gibson, the Whites and Bates intended to go back to New York City, Port Gibson is right along the Erie Canal, and the gang intended on taking a packet boat to the Hudson River and from there down to the city. A packet boat was a 60 to 80 foot long boat and charged about 4 cents a mile or so, pulled by horses on either bank. There was usually some room below deck to sit, but in the summer it sweltered and people just sat on the roof or anywhere they could. Ducking every time they passed under one of those low-sitting Erie bridges... The whites and Bates were all too late to catch the packet boat and had to settle for a line boat, which were similar but slower, less comfortable, and about half the price. They thought they'd just take the line boat until a faster packet boat came and they were told that they could just jump aboard it at this point. Except when the packet boat came, it didn't slow down. James and Ellen leaped from the line to the packet boat. Bates, holding their money for the fare, also leaped, and his toe snagged the edge of the boat, and he fell into the water. There was Bates, screaming in the water. His wallet was in one hand, and a dollar was in the other. Meanwhile, his hat was floating away, and he had to make a snap decision. He managed to reach out and snag it, but he lost his dollar in the meantime. There you have it. The captain of all those ocean voyages who sailed from Brazil to Russia and back again across a treacherous ocean. Yeah soaked. Ellen White would later look back upon these days by saying that I met with them and we studied and prayed earnestly. Often we remained together until late at night and sometimes through the entire night praying for light and studying the word. Again and again these brethren came together to study the Bible in order to know it. You might think this is strange given the visions Ellen White seemed to have. Couldn't God just save everyone a bunch of time and just tell her what He wanted them all to believe. Okay, guys, I want you guys to know that slavery is a no-no. Saturday is a Sabbath. You should not start a land war in Asia. And apple stock will be really, really valuable. So get in on the ground floor of that one, okay? Thanks. But it didn't work out that way. Ellen said that she never received a vision, except that everyone had studied themselves senseless first. Then God would give her the answer. It took work hard work, and a lot of debate and discussion, whatever you want to call it, first. God wanted them to wrestle with the Bible. Even with the visions, not everyone was always in agreement, but were eventually overcome by focusing on the big picture. There were some core beliefs that they wanted to get down, and who cared what color the carpet was? When the disagreements got too sharp, they would break to all go pray by themselves in return. In the end, Ellen wrote, We loved Jesus. We loved each other. But conferences weren't so much a way of getting the word out as a way of keeping the believers together, a way to fuse a communal identity out of a lot of individuals with different ideas. So far, these conferences were largely confined to New England, and you could meet every month until you're blue in the face and not grow much in membership. Conferences were largely for the benefit of the faith community and didn't really get the word out, which was, after all, the point. This began the change at the conference in Topsham, Maine, that October, 1848, where the people gathered, tossed around the idea of printing what they knew on the Sabbath. The conference was a huge summit on the Sabbath, and they'd learned a lot over the past few years, but no one felt the time was right to write about it. This all changed at their next conference, a few weeks later, in November, which met in Dorchester, Massachusetts, outside Boston. They were examining Revelation 7 and how it relates to the Sabbath. Fresh in mind was a certain J.B. Cook, an old Baptist Millerite, who had been writing in a paper for two years about why the Sabbath needs to be kept, only to give it up himself two months before this meeting. Ellen White went into vision, and when she came out, she found her husband and said, I have a message for you. You must begin to print a little paper and send it out to the people. Let it be small at first, but as the people read, they will send you means with which to print, and it will be a success from the first. From this small beginning, it was shown to me to be like streams of light that went clear around the world. While they were studying prophecy, these Adventists were also paying attention to the headlines, the 1848 revolutions in Europe were raging, and over 50 countries were affected by it worldwide. Workers rose up, preaching revolution. Could this be a fulfillment of prophecy? No, Ellen White told them, don't be distracted. Sure enough, in 1849, it all died down with not much to show for it. There were some massive economic and cultural changes, but the political landscape still looked pretty much the same. The goal was to keep her eye on the ball. The goal was to publish And once the Adventists started publishing, my goodness, that's a lot of paper. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Avenus History content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is history Project.org, or by becoming a patron at Patreon.com. Now there's more variety at Avenues History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews, sometimes I do bonus episodes, you know, I, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast and I want to talk some more about it. Other times I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So. You want to go drive around new england a bit see the see the sites and have some fun well you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter once again at avenishistoryproject.org and we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that so just to be very 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 clear we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself